According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 10 is our passage this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And this is about our second, no, our third session or thereabouts in the uh, Good Samaritan Episode, episode 8 in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus Christ. We've been focusing on the lawyer and uh, examining the aspects of his question, the assumptions behind his question, the assumptions centering on law and that by uh, legal observance uh, and uh, good human effort, um, you can inherit eternal life. And uh, of course, it's a flawed assumption. No one can deserve eternal life. But for the sake of argument, Jesus allows the fallacy to, uh, to stand. He allows the fallacy to, uh, to be maintained for a period and uh, only to then have a greater uh, impact in the message that he delivers in terms of the parable, the Good Samaritan parable. And that's what I want to, uh, what we will be focusing on here this morning. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that believer priests are equipped with the Holy Spirit, that we're in fellowship. Might take a little extra time this morning. We'll be in fellowship and uh, handle the Word of God, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing we have this morning, the blessing that it is to assemble together to receive instruction. We thank you for the faithfulness of your word, the power that it uh, produces in our lives, and Father, just the, uh, the delight that we have to occupy with Christ and to fellowship over uh, the love that you provide. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Something else I didn't do is print any paper notes to read from, so that's all right. We, uh, let us read this. As we've gone through here, we understand the context for this episode. It follows and illustrates the Lord's comments contrasting the wise and intelligent from the babes. And you notice verse 21, verse 25. When you contrast the two, you see that the paragraph before immediately leads into this paragraph here. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And the very vivid illustration of that, you're wearing the same shirt. Oh, my goodness. Nobody told me it was Good News Club Day. I should have could have worn my shirt. Amazing, the... Eight minutes after the air, and I'm just seeing who's sitting here. How about that? Hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. And lo and behold, in that vein, uh, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. So does he classify under the wise and intelligent that has the things of the Spirit of God hidden from him? He's clearly not the infant that's humble before the Father and and teachable in uh, terms of the humility that this passage identifies. We don't know his name, so I simply call him Nakimostis, the certain lawyer, taking his stand to put the Lord his God to the test. Of course, this is in violation of Mosaic law that says, thou shalt not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Question under point three. His question is similar to the Philippian jailers. What must I do to be saved? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Question is nearly identical. However, the motivation behind them is entirely different. It does focus on what the human action must be. And, of course, we understand the biblical answer for that. Nothing. You can do nothing to earn it or deserve it, but you must believe in order to receive in terms of the gift freely offered and freely received. Point four, Jesus replied to the lawyer by appealing to the law and the lawyer's own recitation of it. How does it read to you or how do you read it? How do you recite it when you are standing in the position of authority to teach the living and abiding word of God? What is your interpretation and application? Aspects there. The fallacy, of course, is that adherence to the law produces worthiness. Uh, which is not true. Uh, you cannot earn it uh, beyond the fact that there no human being has ever, other than Jesus Christ, has ever perfectly kept the law, every point, every subpoint for his entire human life. The actual truth is, is that it's not um, adherence to the law that produces eternal life. It is uh, that produces worthiness for eternal life, but it is the fulfillment of the law demonstrating worthiness to provide eternal life. And that is just all the difference in the world. God, why did God give a law that nobody could keep? Because one person can keep it. One person cannot just keep it, but fulfill it so as to provide for the uh, reality of that in our life in Christ. All right, which gets us to the parable. Now, the parable itself teaches, and what does it teach? The Good Samaritan parable illustrates unconditional, sacrificial, integrity love. And it does so in a timeless manner. This story is timeless. It preaches the same today as it did 2,000 years ago. And it will preach the same way 1,000 years from now. This message is universal. The Good Samaritan parable illustrates unconditional, sacrificial, integrity love in a timeless manner. This is a passage that we, we, we use, we can use, we should use. For instance, if uh, you ever given somebody the gospel or you're ever discussing the love of the Father and they don't have a frame of reference to understand it, this is where you take them. This will provide them their frame of reference. Uh, if you're giving the gospel, in fact, like a situation last night, with an individual who has no context for love itself or even a father's love specifically, this is a context where you can take them. This is a definition of love. The blessing we have is that the Bible not only gives doctrines and promises and principles, but actually communicates the stories to illustrate those doctrines, those promises, and those principles. And so if uh, you find that your message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and you find the person you're talking to is, is clueless with regard to love, bring them here. Because this is the story that tells love about love your neighbor in a very vivid way. And if you want to, you can illustrate with the, the different things. We'll, we'll show you how you can update it, because to be honest, a Samaritan won't communicate uh, unless the person understands the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, so you may have to update it a bit. You may have to bring in, incorporate modern day uh, prejudices, racial prejudices, and so forth. And, and you know, whatever you have to do to, uh, to highlight the impact that this message is. All right. So uh, the 
Answer is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you got it. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Well, as most lawyers do, he wants to know the fine print. He wants to read the fine print and understand how he can work around this. Where's the exception? Where's the wiggle room? What can we do about this? And uh, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And just like a coyote in a trap, he's caught. And his only answer at this point is to chew off his arm. Because he stepped in it. Jesus Christ laid it out right there. Uh, You want to earn your salvation? How does it read to you? Love the Lord God? Love your neighbor? Boom, there you go. Okay, do that and you can earn eternal life. And that's the trap. Because this man does not understand what agape love even is and the unlimited uh, uh, nature of it. Who is my neighbor? See, is going to point out to him that he can't fulfill this. He's going to point out to him that this is a standard of perfection and eternity that no finite human being can attain to. So in the answer of who is my neighbor comes the story. And we'll go through that here this morning. Before we do, though, understand the nature of this, um, that it is timeless. Subpoint A, the Good Samaritan, that is the parable of the Good Samaritan, transcends dispensations and ages. The Good Samaritan transcends dispensations and ages. We even when we use the terminology today, you talk about Samaritan's Purse, for example. You talk about different charities in this story. Even unbelievers have a framework to understand the Good Samaritan message is a powerful message. The Good Samaritan spans every conceivable interpersonal relationship as well. Not just the dispensations and the ages, but every interpersonal relationship as well finds an application in these principles. So if you think about it, uh, the, the doctrine, the teaching of this parable is certainly applicable in the church age, no question. But it wasn't given in the church age, was it? Jesus Christ delivered this message under the dispensation of Israel, stewardship of Israel, to the Jewish people for their application. But we find application ourselves because the principle is timeless. Likewise, had this message been spoken in the dispensation of the Gentiles, uh, Melchizedek would have had no problems with it. Noah would have had no problems with it. Uh, believers in the uh, Job and uh, Eliphaz, Ophar, Bildad, all those guys, they could have uh, understood the impact of this message. They would have had different terminology, of course. They probably would have changed uh, Samaritans to uh, Sabaeans or some other type uh, of uh, folks. Remember, it was the Sabaeans that raided and, and killed his kids and things. So uh, for, the, for Job to use this story, for example, you have to change some of the some of the geography and, and terminology. But the timeless message still would have resonated in their dispensation, in their stewardship. It's not uh, limited to a particular application. Likewise, any uh, interpersonal relationship, husbands and wives within marriage, can find application for uh, who is my neighbor in terms of how do I apply sacrificial, unconditional integrity love. Parents and children, pastors and congregations, employers, employees, um, Neighbors in the neighborhood. Imagine that. Who's my neighbor has application with your neighbor. (laughs) All right. Your literal neighbor. 
lives on your street, right? Call the county sheriff to report you for whatever reason, all right? You've got to love your neighbor because Scripture commands you to. Because anything less than that fails to attain to the standard uh, that we have. All right, now point six, let's get the specifics. And there's a number of things I want to highlight here. And since I don't have my paper, I can't tell you exactly. We'll just find out as we pop them up on the screen. How's that sound? All right, let's read through it. Starting with verse 30. Jesus replied and said, he replied, that is, he addressed the specific weasel question, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. What do you know? What are the odds? A priest, by chance, was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Well, duh. <laughs> All right. Is there anyone here this morning that can't answer that? Well, I guess class is over then. It's pretty simple. And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. All right. Go and do the same. Uh, by the way, that's that final phrase is our imperative. It is our command. All right. So we'll handle this here under the specifics. First of all. A certain man, I'm just going to outline this and give you the vocabulary. A certain man fell among robbers and was beaten half dead. Three terms that could be expanded into lengthy studies. We're not going to do them. Uh, the first two would be fairly lengthy. Peripipto, number 4045. Um, and that one, actually, I kind of like to give a little bit of a survey on. Let me get if this will let me. My Bible software running. And then uh, we'll take a look at some of these verses. But peripipto. Pipto is just the word to fall. Yet you attach to it the uh, prefix peri, P-E-R-I, if you think perimeter. Peri means around. All right. So peripipto, uh, to fall around. That is, you're surrounded by a bunch of guys around you and they're falling on you. Uh, in other words, you're getting mugged. Okay, you're uh, you're coming down off a volcano and waiting for your friends to show up and they're surrounding you. He fell among robbers, lestai. These aren't the thieves. If you talk about the penitent thief on the cross, thief is a misnomer. A thief is a kleptes. A robber is a lestes. And these guys are the uh, the violent robbers. These are the uh, the murderers, terrorists, to give them uh, a more modern term. 
And this is what uh, these were the folks that Christ was uh, crucified between. We recently did a study on thieves and robbers because of a fairly recent uh, episode in the Life of Christ series. Uh, do you recall that where we gave the contrast between thieves and robbers? It was in John chapter 10 with the parable, I am the door. You remember that? And he said, all who came before me were thieves and robbers. Kleptes and lastes, or the plural klepti, lastai. So lastai number 3027, and that can become an interesting word study itself. Um, we won't look at it. I, I do want to highlight the peripipto uses there. And then he was beaten half dead. Hemi thanes. Now you think hemi, like hemisphere, hema, whatever. We got hema prefix in English, meaning half. Hemisphere is half the planet. We live in the western hemisphere, for example. Or the northern hemisphere, if you're equatorially minded. Hemathanes, half dead, uh, from thanesco, to kill, or uh, thanatos, for death, and the, the uh, family of verbs there. Now, let's see if this loaded. It did. What does it look like up there? Hey, I'm kind of liking that. In fact, the start button can be seen now, or it couldn't be seen before. It's a good deal. All right. We'll see what this looks like. You all read that? All right. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And I'll just right click on fell. We'll do an Englishman's concordance on 4045. All right. The other locations where. This pops up. You ever done a study in the book of James? Been here on Sunday nights when Cliff Beveridge did the book of James or reading on uh, Trailblazing blog there and uh, reading a study on the book of James or anything? James 1, 2. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter... Nice word there, encounter. It sounds so harmless. It sounds so innocuous, right? You encountered. Oh, guess who I ran into at the mall? I encountered. No, no. It, encounter is too kind. It's too soft. It's too uh, friendly. Oh, you didn't. You don't encounter various trials. Consider all, all joy, my brethren, when you get mugged, beaten, stripped, left for dead on the on the Jericho road by various trials. <laughs> all right, because if, if you're not getting surrounded and mugged and stripped and beaten and left for dead on the Jericho road then you're not facing the kind of trials that James 1 is talking about. And if, if you're just encountering trials, then that's not the testing of your faith that's going to produce the endurance. That's not the endurance that's going to produce this perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right? So uh, this is some of, the, some of the delight and the joy you come across when you start to uh, dig into the vocabulary and you start to see some of the word associations and the way that terms are used. And so you might not otherwise link uh, the Good Samaritan parable in Luke 10.30 with the uh, introduction to the book of James. Consider it all joy, my brethren, until you do a word study of this nature and you find out, wow, there's something pretty, uh, pretty impressive with the term peripipto. And then the only other place where it's used in Scripture is another Luke reference, uh, the author Luke, in uh, Luke Part 2, the book of Acts, where we read in Acts 27.41 about a shipwreck. Casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, where they're desperately trying to avoid uh, 
the ship going down here. They're, they're throwing off all the weight imaginable. They're dumping the cargo. They're doing everything they can. Casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. Okay, This is why I wasn't in the Navy. And I think Army was smarter, getting on solid ground. But And then striking a, a reef. Striking a reef. In other words, peripipto, you're surrounded, you're getting mugged by. In this case, the ship is mugging the reef. Where two seas meet. They ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast, remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. All right? That's not a good thing. <laughs> you don't want to be in that position. Well, that is your word study there, striking a reef, uh, encountering various trials, or falling among robbers. Three widely different translations, all coming from the same... Uh, vocabulary there then so a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and struck a reef <laughs> encountered a shipwreck got mugged among the robbers they stripped him beat him and he went away leaving him hemithanatos hemithanes half dead all right again i'm not going to expand on robbers we've done that fairly recently uh, you understand the violent nature of it the thief uh you, you can think of as more of the uh, sneaky type the the guy that comes in and when you're not looking um creeps in through a window and swipes possessions and then leaves without actually doing you physical bodily harm the lay stays doesn't care about being sneaky uh, because he's just going to kill you anyway and, and, and rob what you got after, you know, picking your bones or whatever he's doing. Uh, that's the, the more brutal, violent approach. And, uh, and there you have it. So this is who he encountered, and he was beaten half dead. There's another uh, word standing there on beaten that was kind of fun, but I didn't put it in the notes. All right, point B. By chance. By chance. And this is a fun one, too, although um, you have to branch beyond biblical literature to, to really pursue it because this is the only place where Sun uh, Kurion occurs, 4795. By chance, Kata Sun Kurion, by chance. And now, of course, do we believe in chance? Is there such a thing as chance, as luck? Oh, what a lucky day. What an unlucky day. What, you know, what a coincidence. Imagine. What a, what a, who, who could have thought this might have happened, right? Man, you think somebody might have planned that or something. Well, no. All right, what, what are our verses that we use to understand sovereignty at work, right? God works all things after the counsel of his will. You either believe that or you don't. The Bible says it, so I believe it. God works all things after the counsel of his will. So does that, does that leave anything out? Does that leave allowances for some things that, that God's not working after the counsel of his will? There's just some things that, well, flip a coin, it might happen. Boy, man. No. There is no chance. There is no accident. There is no... Uh, everything that occurs, occurs because the Father directs it or permits it in the outworking of the angelic conflict. We've got to understand that. It is a consequence of direct uh, choices. See, as, as uh, God designed this cosmos to be uh, 
functioned in by volitional beings, including himself. He himself is a volitional being. All right, so uh, the word study on kata sunkurian, uh, S-U-N, or S-U-G, the G becomes an N because it's in front of the K, S-U-G-K-U-R-I-A-N, sigma, upsilon, gamma, kappa, upsilon, rho, iota, alpha, nu. Uh, like I say, the, that gamma becomes an N in front of the K like it does in front of another gamma and so forth. Uh, the, the verb, if you change your Ian ending to an E-O ending, sunkureo, Oh, remind me, i got to install my underliner. I don't have my underliner doohickey device on this new computer yet. Okay, gyro tools is what it's called. Uh, but you have this I-A-N feature up there, and change that to an E-O, and you got your verb. Soon kureo, soon kureo. And the kureo, the kureo root, uh, is used of coincidences of... Uh, deliberate occurrences, even our English word occurrence, uh, you can you can hear the similarity between occurrence and kureo, and soon kureo is like a synchronized occurrence. You know, this happened, and then this happened, and you synchronize those occurrences, and you think, wow, what are the odds of that? Seems like a coincidence, a coincidence. All right. So, uh, anyways, it's a fun word study, uh, only because uh, it is alien to the Bible. This is the only place where, where the term is used. And it is so um, frequent in the, in the, uh, the profane Greek writers, in, uh, in the, the, the philosophers and the poets and the tragedians and the comedians and all these Greek writers. Uh, going back to Homer and other, other uses of this word, it's interesting. And, and think about conversations you have with unbelievers and, and folks that don't have, even believers, sadly, that don't have divine viewpoint, don't have a biblical frame of mind. They just think there's all kinds of coincidences going on in the world. All kinds of, well, you know, it's just what happens. Bad luck. Wrong place at the wrong time. You know, could have happened to anybody. Stop. We're not living in a, in a universe of accident or chance or random. You know, we, we are functioning day by day in the plan of God. And if something, if you encounter something today, then the Father has a purpose for it. He either directed it or he permitted it. And in my mind, I suppose at the judgment seat of Christ, those things will get sorted out. We may learn after the fact that a test was part of God's directive will, or we may find out after the fact, the judgment seat of Christ, that a test we faced was part of his permissive will. The point being, though, it doesn't really matter much, does it? Remember in the book of Job when uh, Satan wanted to afflict Job and God gave him permission to do that? All right. Now, God didn't direct it to happen, but God permitted it to happen. And either way, this is why I say, who cares? It doesn't matter. Because either way, it, whether God directs it or God permits it, it's his purpose that he is bringing about through that, through that event transpiring on that day. So uh, this is why we can kind of laugh a little bit about, about chance. And, and if you have divine viewpoint, if you have the biblical perspective on things, uh, it's a relaxed mental attitude opportunity. You know, doctors in there, well, we think there's a... 60% chance of, of living five more years, blah, blah, blah. You know, cancer estimations and different things. Well, 
60% chance? How about 100% chance God's sovereign plan is going to be accomplished from Alpha to Omega? All right. What's 60%? That's stupid. 100% chance God's will is going to be accomplished to glorify Jesus Christ. All right. In any event, let's stick with the text because the text says by chance. A priest and a Levite passed by. Okay, you got the priest in one verse, the Levite in the next verse. Uh, priest in verse 31, Levite in verse 32. Uh, the term by chance only occurs in verse 31, but the likewise in verse 32 brings it into focus there also. So uh, it's by chance, the priest, by chance, the Levite uh, just happened to be on the road. Okay, They're not really going anywhere. Have you noticed that? The Samaritan's the only one with a purpose. Okay, Yeah, the Samaritan's purpose-driven. How about that? He knows where he's going. He's on a journey. And he's not uh, just wandering around on this road. Uh, he's on the journey. We'll talk about that in verse 33. But the uh, priest and Levi don't seem to be on a journey. They don't seem to have a destination. They don't seem to know what their purpose is, their goal, where they're going, what God's doing with them. And so uh, it forms the contrast. Now, what did they do? Did they have compassion? They didn't have compassion. They passed by. They passed by. Anti. This is one of our uses of anti. Like if you think anti-Christ. Um, it has an aspect of against. It has an aspect of, uh, you know, a, an adversarial relationship uh, to be an enemy of. But there's another use of anti that is much more common. And I think it's fitting here and it's fitting in many respects with anti-Christ. Um, is the idea of um, opposite, the idea of across, the idea of alternative, okay? Um, if you have an alternative plan to God's plan, you have an anti-plan. You're anti-God, see? And so the anti-Christ, yes, it's against Christ, but it's also an alternative, as it were. And so, uh, you know, the priest decides he needs to be on the other side of the street, <laughs> right? I don't know if he crossed at a crosswalk or if he jaywalked or what he did here. But um, anyway, the claim being, if um, the, the, the plausible deniability, right? Remember that term? I think we learned that in the Clinton administration. Was that the plausible deniability? Okay. Well... If I cross by over here, then I can act like I never saw the guy. Oh, oh, was there somebody laying there in the road? Oh, oh, I never noticed. I didn't see that. Oh, see. Like, uh, you know, your husband who, I never saw the laundry sitting there needing to be folded. Oh, I never saw it sitting there. I, I'm sorry, I, I would have folded that. I should have folded that. I never saw it sitting there. Well, you know, when actually it's not just a single basket, it's about seven baskets that are piled on a mountain. It's like, I never saw that. Well, all right. Anyway, we've got a compound. Anti combined with para combined with erkamai. And you put two, the double prefix, the anti prefix, the para prefix. You attach them both in front of erkamai. Erkamai is a pretty standard going verb. And uh, against, across, going, passing on by. 
And that's what we have here. So by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, passed by on the other side. Antipar Erkamai is what he did. All right. And uh, there's so much that you can preach about this because, see, remember the, the backdrop for this is the law. The law of Moses commands believers under the law to love their neighbor. That's a command. And who should be accountable to the law more so than anybody else but a priest, right? Who uh, knows what his obligations are, who sees a neighbor, someone in need, but actively takes steps. Antiparechomai is an active, what's a middle voice, deponent, active verb. He's taking actions to avoid the responsibility, to avoid the necessity to do something about it. This is the, the, the ostrich maneuver. What we were talking about the other night, the ostrich maneuver in, in Schaefer, Sunday night. You know, if you, if you uh, perform the, the ostrich maneuver, you're doing that volitionally, willfully, because you don't want to see it. And so that's what he's doing here. Uh, that should be Luke 10, 31 through 32, not 1 through 32, 31 through 32. Levite, same story. Now, the, the priest is the pinnacle. The Levite is just kind of uh, icing on the cake, or it's kind of uh, uh, the final nail in the coffin, as it were. A priest, uh, I guess you could say, uh, a Levite would be more fitting for rendering service because the Levites were the uh, the deacons for the for the priests. The Levites were the hands-on helpers. The the Levites uh, would have been more natural than a priest. A priest actually could say, "Oh my goodness, here's a brother. He's in need. He needs attention." But he assigns a Levite to do it uh, for any number of reasons. First of all, if the guy's dead, the priest can't touch him. Uh, if, if the man actually is dead, then the priest uh, touching a corpse would, would leave him ritually unclean and ineligible for priestly service, blah, blah, blah. So if he didn't want to be the total weasel and cross the street and say, oh, I didn't see him, he could see him and still claim his ritual purity and then instruct a Levite then to touch the corpse, to check the body, to provide help, things like that. So anyway, I find it interesting here that the parable begins with the priest. Leadership starts top down and then hits the priest and then hits the Levite. If we were going to bring this into a church age application, we would say, you know, a pastor walked by and then a deacon. Right. And then you've you've accomplished the same uh, the same concept, just updating it for the stewardship. All right. Same uh, activity. Auntie Parakamai, the Levite wants no part of it either. Subpoint one, both the priest and the Levite should be expected to fulfill the essence of the law. Both the priest and the Levite, they're accountable. This law is theirs. They are subjects of the law. Both the priest and the Levite should be expected to fulfill the essence of the law. Because they were under the law. And they were responsible as the leaders to teach the others who were under the law how to live under the law. This is why it's so condemning in Romans chapter 2 where Paul says, you know, you who have the law and do you teach others, do you not 
you, know, you see the rebuke there that they're accountable. They're absolutely accountable. Secondly, the um, Bob, you want to see if they need assistance? Thank you. So both the priest and the Levite should be expected to fulfill the essence of the law. All right. LaRosa, if he needs some assistance, just talk to him, see what's going on. Okay. I put a lot of authority in my 16-year-old, and he handles things very well. Secondly, this chance, quote-unquote, I put chance in quotation marks, is sovereignly designated as a testing condition. This chance, quote-unquote, is sovereignly designated as a testing condition. It is an evaluation. And at the... uh, I almost said judgment seat of Christ. That's for church age. But at the uh, evaluation that believing Jews will face... Uh, they will watch uh, wood hand stubble get consumed. All right. Now, again, this is a parable, so we're not talking about literal people. There was not a real priest and a real Levite and a real Samaritan and so forth. This is a parable and made make-believe story. All right. But the, the bringing this story into a literal application, though, we understand that when God has these circum, when we encounter these circumstances uh, that may seem to us to be a coincidence... It's not. That it is a circumstance, it is a condition, a testing condition. This is why when the colonel taught mastery of the circumstances and details of life, the impact of that doctrine was, was, I think, missed by a lot of people. Mastery doesn't mean that we're in total charge. It means we have the relaxed attitude because he's in total charge. (laughs) And whatever circumstances and details we encounter or that mug us, Okay, whatever circumstances and conditions we find ourselves dealing with, we're not the masters of them. God's the master of it. And we need to walk by faith and and, uh, understand the testing condition that we're in. See, this is where I think if we if we mature, if we grow up, our prayer life will change. And we will have less and less prayers about health and money. And we'll have more and more prayers about our priestly service, our attitude towards God in the face of health and money testing circumstances. Because a health test is that. It is a testing condition. It is a testing condition. Uh, Finances are a testing condition. Marriage is a testing condition. Sorry, didn't mean to laugh. I get that wicked laugh, and they record me on that, and then they play it back. Marriage is a testing condition. Parenting is a testing condition. Parenting with teenagers. Parenting condition. See. All right. So, the more we understand the sovereignly designated testing conditions, the better we can handle our prayer life. See, because all too often we're praying for the condition. We're not praying for the task that the condition is supposed to illustrate. 
see. Does that make sense? All right. I just I had this thought the other day. What really struck me, one quick side trip, we've got 15 minutes left. I may go long because I started late, right? No, I can't do that. Actually, I've got an appointment. I've got to get going. Um, but in uh, 3 John, the other morning in prayer meeting, we read about the prayer here. 3 John, verse 2, Beloved, I pray in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Soul prosperity and soul health is the issue. And uh, physical health and earthly prosperity is only prayed for as it relates, just as, okay, that phrase just as, earthly health and earthly prosperity is prayed for only to the degree that they parallel the spiritual health and the spiritual prosperity. How insulting is it to the throne of grace praying for earthly health when the spiritual health's a wreck? (laughs) We're kind of putting the cart before the horse. We're disobeying the command that says, Seek ye first the righteousness of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. If we make physical health a priority when the spiritual health is a wreck. Or earthly finance is a priority when the spiritual uh, prosperity is a wreck. The heavenly bank account is destitute, bankrupt, overdrawn, and we're praying about earthly money? How dare we? You know, at that point, we're, we're no different than the pagans praying to their pagan god. Do we have the perspective or not? So we can start to reevaluate chances, coincidences, things that happen Rather than accidents or coincidences, let's identify them as the sovereignly designated testing conditions. This is a circumstance God put into my life on this day. How am I going to respond? Does it affect my priesthood? Is it, is it stopping the fruit I'm commanded to bear? What, what, how is it impacting what I'm doing? All right. Moving on to the Samaritan. Point C. A Samaritan. Now, he's not here by chance. He's actually going somewhere. (laughs) He's a Samaritan on a journey. A Samaritan on a journey. And you wonder, the priest and Levite weren't on a journey. He's on a journey. Were they just kind of roaming around, wandering around, kind of, you know, where are you going? Nowhere. What are you doing? Nothing. Okay. You know, I mean, just think about it. How many people do you know that uh, they're, they're drifting? They're aimless. They don't know what they're doing. Samaritan, though, he's on a journey. He knows where he's going, knows what he's doing. Haduo is a neat verb. It's a verb from hados. Hados is a road or a way. And haduo, he's roading, road tripping. He's uh, journeying. Number 3593. I think it's a hay pack, so it's the only place you have it. Possibly. I think so. He felt compassion. Here's a fun one for you. Splank needs a my. Number 4697. Splank needs a my. S-P-L-A-N-C-H-N-I-Z-O-M-A-I. Splank needs a my. You love it when you have all those consonants together. S-P-L-A-N-C-H-N. 
It's really G-C-H-N, but you can't pronounce G-C-H-N, so they make it N-C-H-N, which is still hard to pronounce. I-Z-O-M-A-I, Splanknizomai. The Splanknon are your kidneys, are your inner workings, your innards, your small intestines, your guts. All right? The seat of your affections, your passions, your heart. This is an emotional term. He felt compassion. He felt compassion. He didn't pass on by. He felt compassion. And that compassion is what motivated his actions. Say motivated, not controlled. It's important that we understand the perspective on this. Now, uh, we don't want, we're not slaves to our emotions. But neither are we um, dictators denying our emotions. Emotions are a reality. And I find this remarkable because the, um, remember the imperative here is to love your neighbor. And to love the Lord your God. And so we need to have agape love application and here is an agape love application in a context that includes an emotional component <gasps> shock no no wait you're wrong that can't be right agape love is impersonal love it's unconditional love it's unemotional love wrong if your idea of impersonal and unconditional and integrity includes the idea of unemotional, look again. Compassion, right there. Splank needs am I. So there's a fun word study. And as we have time, if we get to the top of the hour here and have time left over, we'll look at all the splank needs am I. You want to look at splank needs am I, splank non, uh, the, the cognate noun along with the... Uh, along with the verb form there for your word study. Now, what's remarkable about this, of course, is that the Samaritan is not under the law. The Samaritan is under no obligation whatsoever to adhere to the Mosaic law. The covenant with Moses was given to the nation of Israel. He's not under any obligation. He's not uh, of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, you know, you can debate whether they were half-breeds or half-Jewish, blah, blah, blah. But um, the, uh, the issue remains there that, they, that he was not Jewish. Samaritan is under no obligation whatsoever to adhere to the Mosaic Law. But he applies the God-fearing principles nevertheless. He applies the God-fearing principles nevertheless. He's not subject to Mosaic Law, but he loves his neighbor. So where does that come from? What motivates that? What's the value to that? And how rebuking is that to a Jewish person when a Gentile is more pleasing in God's sight? One who has not the law. And yet, under conscience, under the operational standard of the Gentile stewardship, functioning under conscience, he operated in a manner consistent with God's will for his life. If you're not familiar already, Romans 2 is a passage that has a tremendous doctrinal development behind it. Romans 2, 14 through 16. It 
It's a contrast here. Of course, uh, it's rather rebuking to the Jewish people who thought that their legal observance was credited to them as righteousness. Um, 14, there's a longer development, but just keying in on verse 14. When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law, as it were, to themselves, so to speak. In that, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness and their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. So we have an interesting statement here that it goes on on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. In other words, born again, believing Gentiles, they're not under the standard of law for their uh, temporal life, uh, spirituality, for their uh, experiential sanctification. And yet, um, that standard of conscience, when we talk about the age of innocence, age of conscience, age of human government, the standards for uh, for daily operation in the stewardship of the Gentiles, we see that that's operational and functional here for the Gentile people. They weren't under the law. They weren't obligated to, to follow the, the precepts of Moses in, uh, in, in, ever in that respect. Of course, they're still accountable for how they conduct themselves, either pleasing God or not pleasing God, certainly, and that's what gets highlighted there. So anyway, here's a Samaritan without the law putting this, pre, this priest and this Levite here to shame. I also observe under this, secondly, agape may not take merit into account, but it certainly is not devoid of emotion. The Samaritan didn't stop and evaluate whether this victim deserved his agape love. He didn't consider whether he deserved it or didn't deserve it. Didn't consider whether it could be repaid or not repaid. So you can view this as agape love not taking into account the merit of the object, and that's true. But you cannot say that it was without emotion because this passage specifically describes the emotion. And he was filled with compassion. So agape may not take merit into account, but it certainly is not devoid of emotion. I thought I'd highlight that because there's a misconception out there that agape is Vulcanish, you know, Spock, Vulcan, no emotions. Okay? Not so. Point D. Neighborly caring goes beyond if you want to stop it there, you can. Above and beyond. Neighborly caring doesn't just do the minimum. It goes above and beyond. Beyond what we see here. First aid, inpatient treatment, and then even the long-term rehab therapy. How about that? All in one verse. You've seen this point before, by the way. We did a doctrine of caring in First Corinthians chapter 10 or 11 or somewhere in there. And uh, one of the developments on caring was uh, neighborly caring. It's only one component of caring. There's lots of other aspects for caring. But as I was going through this passage, I thought, you know, we did a study on the Good Samaritan once upon a time. Where was that? It was in the doctrine of caring. So he got first aid. He came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. 
You've got inpatient treatment. He put him on his own beast. You know, loaded him up on his own ambulance. EMS transport here. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. Admitted to the local hospital. Then on the next day, took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Notice he didn't give him a maximum. <laughs> he didn't say, oh, by the way, uh, you know, it's a 80-20 copay up to a maximum amount of this with a deductible of that, blah, blah, blah. Take care of him and I will repay. Whatever more you spend. So there's your rehab therapy. And this could be a long time. I mean, if this man was beaten half dead, uh, who knows what kind of... Uh, and, and I don't know that back then, I'm sure they didn't have all the occupational therapy and physical therapy and all the, the wonderful things that, that we have these days. And uh, whatever more. Here's a blank check. Here's a you name it, I'll pay it. Um, spare no expense. Uh, testimony of grace. I will repay. I find this remarkable because you can look at this principle take care of him as coming from God himself to each one of us under the expectation that we love our neighbor. In other words, fulfill your stewardship. Whatever more you spend, I will repay. Recompense is promised to the faithful steward. When the Samaritan left the victim, this is point E, when the Samaritan left the victim in the innkeeper's care, we see a picture of stewardship and recompense. The victim was left in the innkeeper's care. That's stewardship. What are we doing on this earth right now? We're members of the body of Christ. We're members of the church. We are God's vested steward. So you can paraphrase this. Take care to exercise your stewardship effectively. And when your stewardship is evaluated, full recompense will be administered. We have a picture of stewardship and recompense. The term recompense, the, the aspect of our reward of the judgment seat of Christ is referenced as a recompense. So we have parallels here. If you view, uh, view this parable in a parable of manner, being representative of a greater truth. Finally, the parable imperative, point seven. Twenty seconds to spare. How about that? The parable imperative. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Our standard of evaluation at the judgment. Period. Shouldn't be a question mark. Our standard of evaluation at the judgment. Have you loved your neighbor? Have you applied agape love? What was the purpose of your heart? Remember, the uh, evaluation is when the motives of a man's heart are disclosed. Go and do likewise. Why, when Jesus Christ said, a new commandment I give to you, although it's not really a new commandment, <laughs> it now has new implications because of the realities of the dispensation of the church. But it's not new in the sense that Gentiles and Jews previously were under uh, stewardships that incorporated agape love. Other elements that happen there. All right, I did not have time to take you into Splunk. Needs am I, but it's a neat word study. And like I said, you can uh, pull this up yourself, uh, do your own 
You want to include both the verb and the noun, however. So it's more than just those 24. But you'll notice repeatedly throughout the Gospels, Jesus Christ is the subject of the verb, splank needs am I. Jesus Christ felt compassion. And uh, I think sometimes uh, we fall short in that, or maybe it's just me. And uh, something to evaluate when we consider our position as imitators of Christ and our position as the bride of Christ in this lost and dying world. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word, for your faithfulness. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.